So what's your name? Kenneth. Just Kenneth, or do you have another name too? Kenneth Jamal Whitmer. All right. And how old are you, Kenneth? Six. You're six years old. And what what are you doing right now during the, the days? School. School. And what did you just get finished with in school? You just finish your book. Oh, I I I remember. Um, I finished um my one of my reading books. Oh yeah, what was it about? It was about I forget the name, but it was like so good. You, you enjoyed reading. Yeah, it was once. Um, there was a. This was on the way in. There was a deer, and like he liked his antlers more better than his legs. His legs looked awful. There were some hunters, but his antlers got caught in the tree. Oh no! And but his legs, he didn't know that his. He said his legs were very awful, but his legs were actually very good because it took him pretty fast. Oh, so to, he was able to escape the hunters. Yeah, but he got caught in the tree, and the I think the hunters caught him. The ugly legs saves the beautiful antlers. No. Oh. They got caught in the tree, and he was stuck. Uh oh. Did, did he get shot? I think. I don't know. Hey everyone, it is good to be back on the podcast with you. That was my oldest son, Kenneth, in the intro part there, getting a little introduction to the podcast and you all to him. I'm excited to have on the podcast today my friend Keyshawn Washington. He was on a few months ago, I think back in October, November. We had him on, he shared his testimony and, and just talked a little bit about differences in church and different backgrounds and working in communities where Anabaptists especially are kind of have different backgrounds than the people they're working with, such as inner cities. Um, we touched on racism a little bit, but that's what we're going to dive into in this episode today. So I'm excited if you're, if you're able to listen. Um, it's, it's, he's got a lot of good stuff to share as we unpack the topic, the issue of racism here in America and specifically in our churches. Before we get there, though, I have said that I was going to start reading reviews that you guys left on the podcast, particularly, excuse me, if you listen via iTunes, you can not only rate the podcast, but then leave a review. And there's Roughly 7,000 people who listen to the podcast on iTunes. So I know there's a lot of you out there who could leave a review, and I love hearing feedback. And so, in the last few weeks, I have gotten some feedback. 
So let me read it for you here. Um, I got two reviews. The one was a little, I actually blushed when I read it for the first time. <laughs> so that I was like, okay, well, maybe I won't do the, push it so much anymore. But let, let me read it for you. Um, it says, critics love it. It's sensational, riveting, compelling, and thoughtful. You will not regret listening to this podcast. All these things have been said about the Unfeigned Christianity podcast. The host, Asher Whitmer, is a master in the art of communication and will leave you with bated breath waiting for the next episode. His explorations of deep and sometimes controversial theology will leave you at the edge of your seat. Seriously, though, love the podcast. Would like to see a Joe Rogan-style podcast that's three hours or so in length. Smiley face. Now, I have absolutely no clue who wrote this. The username is Xerxes234. <laughs> Thank you for the kind review, but it's a little over the top. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's actually been said of the podcast or not, but hey, I love the feedback. Thank you for uh, being positive. And it's good to know you're okay with the length because sometimes I worry that things get too long. But Joe Rogan, three hours in length, whew, that would be a long podcast. So we'll see. I don't know if we'll get there. Thanks for sharing. And then I had one more come. This this felt a little more real. It said, Hey Asher, I really enjoy listening to your podcast. You've been asking for honest reviews and the hardest part was getting here. I personally use Android and there's no way to review on iTunes from Android. So I made a special trip here with a Mac to give a thumbs up. Smiley face. I love your passion for the church. It's evident in the people you seek out to interview and the topics you discuss. Stay strong and press on. And that's a username of just a bunch of letters. So I have no clue who shared that either but thank you guys thank you for the feedback thank you for the encouragement the positive feedback again whatever feedback you have i would love to hear it it helps me know how it's connecting with you or not connecting um so you can either rate it or rate it and review it i would love to hear or you can email at asher excuse me i always get this wrong email at podcast at asherwhitmer.com and just drop a note of how you're thinking of the podcast or maybe a person you'd like to see interviewed on the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. And then as always, if you'd like to support, if, you, if you've if you enjoyed the podcast and you want to support the work, you can go to Patreon forward slash, patreon.com forward slash Asher Whitmer and you can support it for whatever dollar amount you want to support. So thank you for hanging in there. Thank you for your feedback and Enjoy this episode where I discuss with my friend Keyshawn racism. All right. Well, it's good to be back on the podcast with Keyshawn Washington. Keyshawn, welcome back to Unfamed Christianity. Thanks for having me back. It's, uh, I think we had an episode back in October, I think, October, November. Um, where you came on and, and shared, primarily shared your testimony, talked about uh, just being the family of God, being brothers and sisters in the church and caring for one another. Um, this episode, we're focusing a little more in specifically on the issue of racism. And so we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, first, just wanted to acknowledge that you have had some fairly big things happen in the last few months. Uh, not only are we all experiencing COVID right now, and you're a teacher, so you're facing 
facing the challenge of working with students virtually, but you also in January, I believe, Clayton Shank passed away and it's been a kind of a father figure mentor in your life. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. How, how's that been going for you? Yeah, he actually, he passed Christmas day. Oh, okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, our family, I actually moved in. We kind of, we kind of quarantined as a staff before the stay at home order even happened to PA oh, okay. in hopes that we could be responsible and be ready to open up, you know, March 30th or whatever, wherever it was. Um, yeah. of course we're long by that. We're long past that. Now we know we're not going to be back now. And yeah. so we had started a quarantine already with just the immediate group there as a group quarantine. So yeah. our, our immediate group was our staff that lived locally and those who didn't, we had to stay away from them. So I stayed for another week or two there, um, hung out with our staff. And then I finally just moved back home to, um, Clayton's house oh, to, okay. uh, where my sisters and mom live right now. Yeah. And I uh, spent time there for about a week. And then I moved, <laughs> I'm not supposed to move all this, all this time, but really needed to get um, around some children because my spirits were starting to fall. Hmm. So I moved over here to my brother's house, which is where I'm at right now, okay. my brother Kevin, and um, and planning to head back to uh, back home tomorrow, actually, oh, okay. Um, okay. to the Shanks again. Yeah. Uh, but just being with them, um, listening to my nieces talk about granddaddy all the time, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, Clayton left behind a... Um, a legacy and a um, reputation of a man who really loved God. Mm -hmm. And that's not just to the public, that's to us as a family. And every once in a while, our family has a chat and we, uh, we put a tear emoji to indicate that we're thinking of him. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we'll explain, sometimes we won't. Um, those things, those have been increasing recently. Um, just our, we miss him. We, we want to know what he would be doing during this time. Uh, yeah. And realizing that that's going to be a lifetime of longing for him, but not having him. Yeah. And but uh, we're um, we all love Jesus. We're all we're all fulfilled by him. Hmm. And um, I think that that really is enough. And we have each other yet on top of that. So we we're blessed. We're we have more than we need. It's a matter of um, recognizing the the help we really do have, and not becoming disillusioned and ungrateful. And yeah. So I think we're most of us are in a pretty good place, but we struggle. Yeah, yeah, I I can imagine. I my mom was killed four days before our wedding, so I didn't really have life at home without her. Um, was newly married. How's that been? How many of you are at home yet? With so there's Tanya. She's getting married this summer. Autumn is home for good now. She's teaching at school next year. Wendy is going to Faith Builders, but they're all home right now. Okay. And Hannah is still in school. Yeah. And then there's Mary Lois and me. Yeah. So um, but I'm temporary, so. Yeah. 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 I I can definitely identify with the 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 concept of grief being like waves where it comes sometimes you Sometimes it feels like the things, you know, birthdays or special dates where you should feel extra emotional, you go through them and it's, it's fine. 
And then there's random thoughts or random little experiences that just make you think of, think of, for me, for mom, think of mom or wonder how she would respond to a certain situation. And it just floods, floods in with grief like that. And, yeah. Uh, think about you guys Yo, a lot. Appreciate it. One thing that I did that I do is when I run across those painful moments, um, for example, dad loved to cook. And uh, he always talked about grilling. He never really did it. He wasn't really good at it. But um, so me grilling, but he was the type of guy that when we were at family cookouts. He he loved to be the one that was grilling. And he was the one that people relied on for that. Yeah. And um, so whenever I see a grill, I think of him. And so what I did was I kind of thought, how do I take the power of this pain and make it a positive thing? Hmm. So I got into grilling hmm. and I got into that. And, and it was not only a way for me to honor him. But also a way for me to um, no longer see that as a bad thing. Like, oh, he's not here to grill anymore. Hmm. But that I can I can do something that he used to do. Yeah. Um, I'm on a diet right now, so I can't eat Reese's peanut butter cups. But when I was buying candy, even though I don't like them, that's what I would buy. Because it's like I'm, a, I'm allowing him to continue to shape my life even beyond his um, – earthly existence and so yeah. that's that's one way that i feel um we can honor those who we've lost is by taking things that were that are triggers for us and making yeah. them part of our lives yeah um, but also not feeling guilty if i'm not a griller and he was yeah. that yeah. we shouldn't let that hurt us and let it let feel this have a false identity but um that's one thing that's been helpful for me yeah is uh i've lost two dads now and then so with Clayton, um, he was a speaker, mm. he wrote poems. Um, how can I do those things to honor him? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what's one of your favorite memories of Clayton? Probably when he was there, I don't know if it's favorite, it gives you the impression that it brings back great memories, but mm-hmm. he was um the first one outside my family that came to the hospital when my biological dad passed away. Mm. That was a really hard experience for me. And when he was there, um, I don't like hugs. And it was, I I think I tell people it was the first hug I ever actually wanted. Mm. Um, I hugged him and I really, really wanted to be hugged because um, Clayton had become a dad to me. Mm. And so I lost a dad and hugged my dad in the same, you know, in the same hour. And it just, I realized how blessed I was and how much he was there for me. Um, yeah. He since since that he had preached a sermon about um, salvation, and he always seemed to give these little looks at me during the sermons to indicate that, you know, he um, he knew what the pain that I was in. We he'd preach about loss. He'd preach about, and so then getting to walk through that with him, mm-hmm. um, and see him dying and seeing him suffering, mm-hmm. realizing that. Um, so I think the next hug that was meaningful for me was was on his deathbed. Hmm. And I actually thanked him and I told I retold that story to him how much that shaped me. And so that's become sort of a um a figurehead for what Clayton meant to me was he was always the one that was there when things broke down. And I think that's what family should be. And that's how it was in my urban culture. Yeah. But um for some reason and mental culture when things got bad you know 
stop in, drop off a meal and leave, you know, it's not bad intentions, but it's almost like we'll give you space. We'll be praying for you. Hmm. Whereas in the culture that I came from, um, we're coming over there. We're going to help you solve this for better or worse, whether you want it or not. Clayton was always that for me. He was very invasive, very um, aggressive. Hmm. And I, hmm. that's something that I needed and wanted in my life. Hmm. Wow. And so he didn't ask to go to the hospital. He came. Yeah. And if he got rejected, he'd understand. But yeah that I didn't have to tell him to come. He came. And that, and that's to me is the, the perfect story to explain who Clayton was. Yeah. Um, He almost had an arrogance about him that he would just move without asking or thinking or Mm. double, double, you know, overthinking things. Um, but I loved it. It was great for me. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. I did not, I, did not really get to know Clayton personally. I think my dad would have known him a little better. He, uh, I was there in York once for a weekend. I was at SMBI, Sherman and Powell Institute, and their, um, forget what they call them, outreach weekend or some um, local, local church outreach or something. And went with a group to York. And then one time he and, Mary, Mary Lois, is that his wife? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were out here for a weekend, but I would I would know I got to know Kevin a little bit more, and then Kelly Curtis and Kelly would know them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always I've always admired from a distance just the way so they're living there in York. And obviously, York isn't a super big city, but it's very urban and not typical for many Mennonites in Pennsylvania, I guess. And, um, and yet their family seems very vibrant, very, uh, in love with Jesus. And, and I just admire anybody who can have more than two or three kids and raise them to have that vibrancy for Jesus as well. It's something I long to emulate as well. Yeah. You really blessed us. Yeah. What? Uh, well, I don't. My mind just went blank on a transition from that into a topic of racism, but <laughs> I guess we'll just go into racism here. Um, we were talking a little bit before turning on the recording button here, just um, some of the. Uh, it's easy for us as white people to either either we tend to deny that racism exists or we acknowledge that racism exists and we want to fix it or understand it. And then we look to our friends of color, whether it be black or brown, Hispanic or Asian or whatever, and, and just start trying to have them explain racism to us. And often what can happen is we don't, we see other, what they're reading is racism. We see other explanations for it and we end up not actually listening to them, but trying to justify um, their experience. Or maybe we do listen and it can be easy to cling to one or two friends to, to try and claim that we have a uh, diverse set of friends 
how can just to let you share some of what we were sharing before we turn on the mics how how can what is your perspective on that and how can we as white people you mentioned how racism is our responsibility it's not yours like it's not and i thought that was important for us to remember in this conversation that we learn what it feels like we learn to see things that we're blind to by listening to our friends of color but it's really not their issue to solve for us. Um, we as white people have done racist things. And we'll get into this in a little bit, but obviously anybody can be racist, but the, the dominant culture in America or in the West, really throughout history, has been the European white man has the power, has the, the most, the widest sphere of influence to exhort his racism. And that has happened here in America. Um, and so it's our responsibility. It's not our friends of color's responsibility. How should, as we talk about racism, as we learn, um, what are just some things on the onset of this conversation to, to tell your white brothers and sisters? Sure. So the one of the things that um, I want to clarify there with it's your responsibility um, I think it's in general, it's the um, the kingdom's responsibility. And, and that, of course, involves every color. Um, you think about um, when John saw in the heaven and he saw all tribes, all languages, how did he know there were multiple tribes? How, how, how could he tell? Was it what they were wearing? Probably not. I don't think that we I don't think that would matter at it. It seems like there was clearly different colors, clearly different, um, visibly different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, the kingdom is diverse. Um, mm-hmm. And that means that if the kingdom has to solve a problem, then that means that several colors are involved there. Um, it's just that, like you said, historically, um, there is a, a disproportionate amount of oppression and power. Um, a rough history there that needs to be acknowledged. And I think that's where the, the idea of uh, there are people of color who don't like having to explain this to people because it, one, it feels like a good heart would, would already know, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's hard to um, justify with the, the scriptures that we have and the resources that we have, such as Google, that we're so unknowledgeable mm-hmm. and, Especially the scriptures, though, and we, um, Paul and Jesus, were so so emphatic about the multi-ethnic church going forward um, post Jesus that for us not to understand or see the importance of that is is challenge is really um, daunting and, like I've said, a stain on our reputation, um, mm. and so when people of color like me see that. Um, and especially through writing the series I'm working on right now, it, it becomes fatiguing and you start to wonder, is this even worth it? And mm. first thing that happened when I posted my first article is a black friend of mine who I've talked with race with before said, it's you're wasting your time. There's no point. Um, and I think more of the heart behind his thoughts there is, first off, it's not your responsibility mm. to, to cover this. Um, if people would read their Bibles and 
read the news, they would already have good opinions about this. Hmm. And I just thought that was a little too simplistic. I thought that that um, it, it meant that these perspectives would not get shared. And I didn't want that to happen. I wanted there to be a um, if people want to know, if people want to see, mm -hmm. I'm willing to volunteer and share me, he, Sean. Mm-hmm. But I understand when people don't want to, because one, the responses can be very ignorant, mm -hmm. um, very, very close minded. You, you can sit there and air out your feelings for hours and then they respond with something that as if they didn't hear anything you said, yeah. you know, and it seems to me like. A lot of people of color have just given up, said there's not really any hope. And I agree. I don't think there's really a way to blame them. I think that there is a clear, a clear need here now, since there is so much hostility, there is so much tension, there are so many walls mm -hmm. that we go to biblical instruction, we go to the Holy Spirit for power, and we, we use what we know as humans to socially become tactful and respectful. Mm -hmm. And we use all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, to humble ourselves and become more loving. So we're able to address this problem at, from a kingdom perspective. Yeah. And so even all my friends know when I have heart to hearts with them about racism, especially my friends of color, they know that I'm, I'm not neutral when it comes mm. to Christianity versus not Christianity. That's not going to change. Mm. And, um, they, they know that. And that's at the forefront because that's all I talk about when we talk about racism. I said, yeah, man, it's really messed up because, the Bible speaks against this stuff. The Bible talks about how the church hmm. should be unifying, uh, especially in Romans. And the fact that white American churches and even, you know, just the churches in general being all their own race, all their own culture is really not a depiction of what it was supposed to look like. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And even they can get behind, even my atheist friends that can get behind that and say, so you, you, you do get it. <laughs> you just get it a different way. Yeah. And it not only promotes Jesus as a complete follow, following Jesus as a complete um, worldview that doesn't have these gaping gaps that makes us all idiots. Um, but applying Jesus to this issue um, points them to the place where they need to be in to begin with. Yeah. And it's white people and black people alike are not going to solve this issue themselves. It's going to take Jesus, who is God. Yeah. to um, unify the church as directed in Romans. And um, uh, one thing that I just wrote about in Article 3 um, is how Jesus was at Nazareth in his hometown. And he came and said, I am the Messiah. You read from Isaiah. And they're like, yes, uh, uh, the Messiah from our hometown. And they're like excited, like, yes, praise you, the Messiah. And then he's like, um, gave two examples, um, next word of the Z and then Naaman, um, and says that basically that the kingdom is for everyone, not just for the people here. Mm. And then they want to kill him. And they're like, oh, what's wrong with you? And it's very easy for um, the um, for monoethnic cultures to say, well, that doesn't really describe us. We're not trying to kill people for telling us to diversify, but have we responded in less extreme ways, um, such as discrediting, um, gaslighting, straw manning, whatever it is, hmm. discrediting the issue 
um, and not looking at it from a biblical perspective in order to curb our own guilt or not not take any responsibility. Yeah. And I think that the church is responsible. I think the church is responsible to address this issue. Mm-hmm. And so the mere fact that we are Christians um, indicates that we need to be a part of this solution mm-hmm. and part of addressing this. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there because I'll, uh, I'll talk for an hour and then <laughs> answer all your questions before you ask them. But certainly I understand why people of color are tired of explaining. And I think that uh, we need to give a, um, give uh, what's the right word um allow that to be the case and not um hmm. not grow discouraged or too discouraged because we can't ever have, have anybody tell us how we feel yeah. that's one reason why i'm sharing because hmm. i know a lot of friends that have tried to get their their black friends to talk and the um painful experiences have bred distrust yeah and so um as someone who would like to help others in my situation of color, especially Mennonite churches, if I can share, if I can speak on their behalf, not all of their behalf, because not all of them feel the same way, mm-hmm. but the ones who do, mm-hmm. um, maybe it will spare them and future people, mm-hmm. maybe the next generation, maybe it will spare them the the pain and some of the pain and some of the um, hurtful comments that they would be getting. Yeah. Yeah, I I find myself in a bit of a tricky spot. I'm curious what your response would be. That, um, I mean, first of all, I I really appreciate you being willing to talk about this issue because there is a lot that a lot of us need to be enlightened in, or or just don't see, and and yet, um. And, and I also think I, I really appreciate talking with you because I haven't met you personally yet, but we've spoken over over Skype now a couple times and had some interaction via social media and so forth. You seem like one of the most disarming guys to have a conversation with on racism with. And I don't know anybody who sits down with Keyshawn is going to come away not only understanding the the issue of racism better, but um, understanding Jesus and the scope of His love and His His inclusion for everyone, despite like even outside of race, but different backgrounds and personalities and stuff. Um, I've just in our brief interactions together, I have sensed that from you, and really appreciate that. And I think just just to set the stage for the audience and so forth who may not know you, um, this is not, Keyshawn's not someone who's disgruntled and just want, has a bone to pick and wanting to share, but um, it's born out of a love, I feel like a love for our church. Like you wouldn't have to share this. You could, you could go and find a more diverse branch of the Christian church. But um, the fact that you're entering this this territory speaks love. And the the thing that I struggle with is, so I have my own series. I haven't written it yet, but it's outlined what I would go over on racism and more kind of tracing a theological standpoint why this matters. Like you can trace all throughout 
the Old Testament into Jesus that um, loving the immigrant and sharing, essentially sharing the gospel and Jesus with all tribes and all nations is a core central theme to all of scripture. But we seem to have lost it in, I don't, I don't know if it's, I'm just reading through some of the history of the fundamentalist movement and so forth. I think, I think some of that has maybe played into as far as American, more recent, um, uh, what's the word, blindness to social issues and so forth. But obviously racism has existed for the whole history of humanity. Um, but one of the, the things that I wrestle with in thinking of posting a series on racism is that I'm white. My audience is, I don't have this the specific statistics, but I, my audience is primarily white, I'm assuming. Um, I'm conservative Anabaptist. The conservative Anabaptist church is primarily white, 95% white. I don't know. I don't know the statistics there either. And when I look around on Facebook and other social media people, whenever there are conversations about racism, you primarily are seeing and hearing white people talk to other white people. And it becomes this, we're not experiencing it firsthand. So it's kind of a theoretical bantering back and forth, trying to help others see and I think it was a, a little over a year ago that I just started, well, in listening to some other other authors and podcasters talk about this, I started realizing, you know, we, we need to just kind of be quiet. Actually, to be honest, I think it was Dorcas Schmucker who wrote, maybe a couple years ago, wrote a series referencing the idea that we who are not black should maybe be quiet about what blacks are experiencing and, and just listening more. And, and so I've wanted to spend more time and energy listening to people of color, letting them share their stories, giving voice to their stories. Uh, my aunt, I have an aunt who's, who's black. And so my cousins are biracial and um, hearing their stories as I can. We don't live close by, so it happens long distance as well. But um, rather than just kind of us whites dominating the conversation again, but then how does that play into this feeling like blacks aren't required to share with us? Um, and even, even, the concept of a token, token friend who's, oh, I've got my one friend, you know, and I listen to him. And so I'm, I've got a diverse set of friends. Um, is there value in writing a series on racism? If I'm white, is there value in having conversations on racism? Um, do, do you understand that question? Like where, where does yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, so it is a bit of a dilemma, isn't it? Because, um, and this is where people usually fatigue, and you'll see this in social media. You ne can never get it right. Um, I only got actually one email um, specifically stating this, but there were several more that were hinting at it before I 
in the first series of, of responses or whatever. And one person said, um, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, you, you might as well just um, give up and let let the world be broken. And I'm like, man, this does not sound very Christian. This does not sound, and, and I don't think we usually take this approach when it comes to things like other social or uh, sinful practices like abortion or, um, you know, what else do Christians speak up against? Gay, gay marriage. Um, but then we think of the concept of someone not being appreciated based off of the diff, their differences. And we just kind of say, well, you might as well just quit or you might as well not, not address it because it's a, you're just going to end up getting hurt. And I'm like, that doesn't um, smell of the sacrificial love that uh, we've been preaching over our pulpits for years. And I think it's imperative that um, we address this dilemma um, with a dilemma killer, which is, which is Christ. You know, whenever in, in class and school, I'm a social studies teacher, and it always seems that we can never quite solve the dilemmas until someone brings up Jesus and and, re, and gives an example from Matthew or Luke, um, really really explains and shows how this is we don't we don't practically or in a scientific way or have a um, we can't deduct how to solve this issue with logic, but here is our example. Here's what he did, and here's how we can address this. Hmm. And and when we see reactions that are not Christ-like, we know that's a red flag. We know that's a problem. Hmm. And and so, and again, I wrote about this when, and I will say it bluntly, when people of color don't respond in a Christ-like way, um, when the people who have been hurt don't respond in it with a heart of forgiveness. Um, one of the things that I, I, I praise God for is I believe um, or I know, I should know, and I do know that God has helped me to forgive every racist person in my life ever. Hmm. Um, doesn't mean that if I see them, I won't have a reaction like, oh boy, like I remember what happened last time I talked to this person. But hmm. anybody who would have hinted racism toward me in my past has been forgiven completely. And when I say that, I literally don't have hatred in my heart for them. It's not just a, a, uh, a platitude or, or a, um, something I just say to make myself believe it or pretend to, to love them. Mm-hmm. I really do love them. Mm-hmm. And I wish that every person of color, every white person, every Mennonite, non-Mennonite, whatever in the world could experience that freedom. Mm-hmm. But I also remember what it was like to live bitterly and, and in frustration. Mm-hmm. And um, because of different worldviews, because of all these different things, um, Going back to your question, should you write an article about racism because you're not speaking from a position of experience personally? Um, I think there's a way that you can do that that's tactful. I think that you can do that in a way that promotes the voices of people who are speaking from experience. Um, I, I guess I wouldn't have to, but I have in the series um, reference some friends. Um, I, I quoted a friend who said that he thinks that Mennonites will be surprised to find black people in heaven, mm. um, even though John John already said that there would be. Um, it, they're gonna they're gonna walk around heaven, which in itself is a 
uh, kind of a compliment. He's admitting that they're going to be in glory. He's admitting they're Christians. He just thinks that they're a little blind to their their ignorances, yeah. and they'll be surprised and perhaps even on the judgment seat or however you view that have to repent of ethnocentrism because they don't hmm. see these, um, they don't see the people, their neighbors, the people around them as the image of God. They, they see them as these thugs or these criminals or these, hmm. um, offended, um, third generation slaves who weren't never experienced slave slavery personally and just want to want reparations and want to be catered to. And they see all of that, but fail to see the one thing that is always true, which is they are the image bearers of Christ. Mm. They are our neighbors. Mm. We are to love them. Mm. And um, so if you can write an article that promotes that love, promotes that that response, that tells the stories of your aunt and your and your cousins that um, that seeks out to use the experience from interviews like this and especially others, not just me, mm-hmm. um, even those who take a more aggressive stance than me. Um, cause I'm very, very Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Not everybody likes that. Not every, some people think it's too, mm-hmm. it's like, a, it's just a, um, flowery response. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't think that's ever a flowery response. I think that really is the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's foundational to my faith, but I have some, close black friends, even Mennonite black friends, the few, as few as they are, that take an even more aggressive stance. Mm-hmm. And then there's some who take a less aggressive, aggressive stance and don't even think they've ever experienced racism in Mennonite churches. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All of them would admit that they know it exists, but in their particular area would it, would say they have never, mm-hmm. never experienced it. Mm-hmm. And maybe just my social media presence and the fact that I travel is what has exposed me to Hmm. bad actors. Hmm. Um, Hearing from them, getting, gathering all those perspectives, giving some of your own. um, I think it's very okay and permissible for people who are white to chime in as long as it's very clear. And one thing I've always cared about during this series I've been writing, I've asked my brothers, do you see a spirit of humility here? Hmm. Is it evident? And and don't be don't be partial. Tell me how it really is. Don't you can hurt my feelings if you need to. So far, every time that I've sent my articles to Kevin, he said it sounds graceful. It sounds humble. It sounds like you're not attacking people. Go for it. Um, and then I and then I pray more about it. And I go and I send it to other people. I'm like, uh, do these does this article scream humility to you or is it? too aggressive. I had to cut parts out because I want people to see my perspective as one that is as Christ-like as possible. Mm. And I mm. think that's what you would have to do as well, mm. is anyone who reads that article leaves saying, this is a humble and a, and a scripturally sound, um, well-researched response mm. that points to Christ and points to people of color of having a voice that should be heard. That's one of my sub reasons for doing this series is I want people of color in the night churches that are there now mm-hmm. and the ones in the coming generation that will be there in the future to be heard, mm-hmm. to be listened to so that their gifts and the, what they have to bring mm-hmm. can be um, added to the church mm-hmm. in a way that it hasn't been in the Mennonite, the Mennonite church. Right. I mean, yeah. So. 
that's that's my perspective on those things yeah no that's good um yeah i've i've thought if if i ever wrote something on that i would probably send it at at least to some different friends of color of mine just to to get feedback on it um but yeah i don't i guess we'll see if we ever get get there um i think and and maybe this will just kind of segue into one of the first questions that i had sent to you but um one of the values that i think we as fellow white people could bring is just an awareness to why the conversation on racism matters. Um, and I guess what, because a lot of people, so I have, I've written, I'm trying to think if I've written maybe a couple articles. I interviewed my aunt a couple of years ago or a year ago. Um, but I've, I've done some like Facebook statuses and stuff kind of speaking to it a little bit sharing quotes or something having other people speak in and a lot of times like that alone gives enough feedback to know that the, <laughs> not only do i wince for any friend of color of mine but then just knowing that if i you know if i ever delved in more it's probably going to be something that's controversial um but there seems to be a lot of, and you alluded to it a little bit before too, um, just to a certain degree, there is a, uh, what's the word, animosity or just hostility against the suggestion that racism exists in conservative Mennonite churches. But in many ways, it also just kind of seems like a complete blindness too, and just not not um not aware of it and so like i look at that and then i also look at friends of mine and even just seeing so we have here in la we don't work with too many black people but a lot of spanish people and his hispanics from mexico guatemala uh, down other countries in central america and and even just watching us interact sometimes and realize, you know what, we're kind of doing things the white way. <laughs> and sometimes we need people to, uh, one, one example recently was the Super Bowl halftime show. Like I looked at that and have pretty much decided not to ever watch football again because it looks so demonic and re resembling, um, resembling things that, the Israelites were doing with uh, pagan nations and so forth. But then some of our Hispanic friends are like, well, they actually thought it did a really good job of, of demonstrating Hispanic culture. And, and so it's like stuff like that. We have a hard time seeing through, we see the provocative, like, yes, horrible immodesty, um, a lot of immorality woven in through that. But then we miss the, the cultural dynamics that are valid, um, legitimate as well. I'm getting a knock on my door. I might just quickly run and see what they need. Mm -hmm. It's fine.
my son's done with school, so I had told him we'd go to the park this afternoon if he gets done. Mm. Um, where was I? Oh, yeah. And so I guess I'm just saying all that to say when we see racism existing or even just we'll get into this in a little bit too, defining racism, but when we see the, the inability to see another person's perspective happening in our churches, we as fellow white people can maybe offer um, a perspective of why it matters to have these conversations and so forth. I'm just curious from your perspective, like why does racism matter? Obviously, um, We've alluded to it several times just for the audience. Uh, Keyshawn is in the middle of writing a series called What the Mennonites Have Gotten Wrong About Racism. Is that the title of it? Yeah, basically. Yeah. And so a lot of some of this, if you go and read his series, he'll he touches on as well, goes more in depth, um, and obviously addresses more than what we'll get to in this podcast. But what, from your perspective, why does conversations about racism matter? And kind of dovetailing to that question, I have had some interaction with people who say they've grown up with black friends and they've never considered them anything different than a white person. Um, and then I'll ask them, like, have you talked to them? Have you asked them how they feel? And they feel that to do that would be racist. And so they're not going to talk about this with their black with their black friends because it would be racist. And what's your response to that? Why does it matter to, to have these conversations? Yeah. So let's, let's address first the um, question of why does conversations on race matter? Um, I was actually going to name the series. Um, what's wrong with the race conversation in our churches, but um, I wanted to identify my audience and my title. Mm -hmm. So, but, um, the reason that this matters is because one, it's a sin. It's sinful to, um, say that someone created in God's image is inferior to another person created in God's image. That is, that is blasphemy. That's heresy. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's not something that we want to be charged with. Yeah. So it's so detestable, so distasteful that, the go-to response is to snap back by saying, well, that's not who I am. I'm not racist. And the, um, okay, that's, that's very nice that you're not racist. Um, so what would it mean for me to tell you that there is a, um, a massive amount of people in the world who are, um, some people will say that that's not true. That it's not really an issue in America. I think that that just points to a lack of knowing uh, what's really happening around us. Um, um, we get lots of platitudes at that point about, you know, we're, we're all one race to human race. And some of these things are true. I don't see color, stuff like that. And I think that that response in itself is an indication that these conversations matter hmm. because I grew up in the hood at a school where I had about three, there were about three white people in our, in our graduating class in freshman year. I was only at York High freshman, sophomore year. I, I graduated at, at our school and here at our church that I teach at now. 
but I would have graduated in a class of about three to four, maybe five white people out of a hundred, maybe. Um, so it's gotta be more than that, but that's what it, about how many, hmm. um, you know, I, I've heard their voices. I, I've, I communicate with some of them on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't feel the way that these white Christians do. That's just not the message that they send. And I'm like, shouldn't we be believing the people who have the skin color, have the culture, have the experience? Shouldn't we be listening to them? Um, and like you said, not not just um, white on white conversation, trying to solve the world, trying to solve the problems. Um, it's all it's kind of insulting to tell a black person that their experience is not valid. It's not complete. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and the giving off that impression, which is often what happens is what makes them want to just shut up and not say anything else to yeah. Mennonites. I've got friends that have left the Mennonite church and will not come back because they feel like Mennonites don't listen. Hmm. Um, and the same the same thing. They don't feel like they can trust Americans because they feel like that's what they experience outside of it too. Mm-hmm. That the white um, Republican, um, I, I want to cover how much I categorize because I can be called guilty of the same things that I talk against, but <laughs> the, the general um, crowd, mm-hmm. um, you can fill in what that looks like yourself. Yeah. Um, they don't listen. They, they're too preachy. Um, that's a problem because we have not seen people convert to Christ that way. We have not seen people convert to Christ through shouting in their ears that their, that their opinion is an invalid is invalid and they have nothing to bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is um, when the Gentiles were becoming Christians, when they were being um, enticed to follow God and, um, I talked a little earlier about how in Nazareth they wanted to kill Jesus for even um, saying, mm-hmm. just reading from Isaiah. I mean, you can't even read the scriptures without people getting upset. Um, and um, Jesus was sticking his neck out and putting his life on the line to to speak very, very seriously that this gospel, this kingdom was for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. If we are not putting our necks out that way, then we're missing the point. We're missing we're missing something. We're missing a character of Christ that we should be emulating. Um, and so being an ally looks like that, looks like what Jesus did there at Nazareth, where I wouldn't say he stood up for the Gentiles, but he made very clear that the gospel going forward was in the kingdom was going to involve both of them. And that's why Paul in Romans was like, OK, you Gentiles, you Jews. This is how you get along. This is how you do this. And that's the whole point of Romans is leading up to this part where this is how you unify. This is how the church should look. And it wasn't saying things like you're not different. He, he acknowledged they were different. Some of them wouldn't eat certain meats. Some of them would. And so Paul addressed those things head on. And so our attitude of us uh, spitting it out of our mouth because it doesn't taste good is is an indication of something that is not in the character of Christ. It's bad. It's not good. Mm-hmm. When we go there, 
we're not even following Christ's example. We're not even following the example of Paul and God's followers mm-hmm. um, that are in the scriptures. Um, we need to be aligning with that. The race conversation matters because it mattered to Paul. Mm-hmm. It mattered to Jesus. And why should it not matter to us? What makes us think that we, yeah. as um, those not written about in the holy inspired word, are are supposed to be um, exempt from this because mm-hmm. some people make us feel bad, but because we're white, mm-hmm. I, I really don't like that response because it reminds me so little of Jesus mm-hmm. and so much of those Jews at Nazareth mm-hmm. who wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff. Mm-hmm. And the more we look like that, the less anyone's going to want to talk or hear from us, including about our Lord. Yeah, it's it's a stain and stains don't look good. I got a stain on my shirt down here. You can't see it, thankfully, but I hope you can't see it. Um, Good. Um, Stains don't look good. They make the whole thing look bad. And this and this shirt is a good shirt, but there's one stain that makes it look bad. I can't wear it in public. I do anyway because I'm lazy. But that's that's the problem with these stains is. There are people of color who are not receiving the word of God, who are not accepting Christ, who are not listening to followers of God because they are not they're not seeing love. They're not seeing a um, a heart that really seeks out to, Hmm. hey, not only are you made in God's image, but you have gifts that can be used for the kingdom. I mean, that I include in my discipleship all the time. With my students is I tell them, if you accept Christ, you're not just killing off everything that is you. You are dying, but you're also going to bring to the church every gift that you have. And that is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And and that is why this conversation because it it's directly connected to the acceptance of the world that is supposed to be one of those tribes that are not able to commune well with our culture. And that should really bother us. Now, um, people say it's racist to, um, Ash, are you with me? I can hear you. Your, your picture froze. I'm not sure. It's probably my end a little bit. So if you I froze. Can, I can still hear you. Can you hear me? Hey, Keyshawn, can you hear me? Yeah. I was like, man, like, man, that transition really well. And then it just, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess I'll just pick up on from there. Yeah. Just pick up from there. We're good to go. Okay. So then on to people who would say you, you, it'd be racist for me to even go and ask them for their experience. Um, I, I don't, that one really perplexes me. I feel like that one is really a, um, a demonstration of a lack of knowledge or a lack of a lack of real world experience when it comes to interacting with people of color. Mm-hmm. One thing we have to realize is color is mostly just color at a, at a, at a, um, at a um, biological level. So it's true that, I am more susceptible to diabetes because of my my race. That's all true, and so that does that should not be discredited. That that there is diversity among among men, and that it's not just the way we look. Mm-hmm. But 
if you take a person, a black, a black guy, for instance, and he's adopted as a newborn into a Mennonite culture, and I know a few of these, um, grows up with all the same stigmas, all the same beliefs, practices, customs, he will likely, um, at some point, he'll have to reconcile with his skin color, but not all parents actually lead out in that very well. Hmm. Um, and so he may, he's going to have a different perspective than someone like me does. And so one thing I've not appreciated is when those people are used, um, like you said, as token black friends, hmm. um, they're kind of used as a defense mechanism to say, well, my one black friend doesn't, doesn't even like black people. I've heard this said to me before. Like he doesn't even like his own people. Yeah. And I'm like, well, then he has problems too. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, and that's one reason why we'll talk about this later, but um, definition of racism to me needs to define, needs to withhold certain things that are always true um, because that's racist for a black, a black man to say, I hate, I, I, I hate the black people of America is, is wrong. It's really messed up. And it comes out of living in a culture that has taught him that the people who look like him mm-hmm. are, are, um, are wrong or different. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of, uh, I wrote about this in the last article, I think. Um, I don't know if I got rid of it or not, but um, I was at a banquet um, and this man got up. Yeah. He had actually made the meal and he said, I have adopted two black boys and um, they have been really giving me trouble. And, but you know, God bless their hearts. You know, they're genetically not as a, uh, not as fit to uh, follow instructions and they just need more time to get around. And he looked at me and said, but not you black boy, not you. And to me, wow. if I would have confronted him, which I didn't because I was in a position of, I needed to maintain my cool. Um, I, I feel like he would have responded by saying, well, my experiences back this up. My, from what I see, yeah. um, this is how it is. I'm not, I don't want to hurt anyone. It's just how it is. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he hasn't heard the, the majority of black people in America. Mm-hmm. He, he's, uh, he hasn't even really heard his own children because I knew his children. Mm-hmm. I had talked to one of his kids about being of color. Mm. Um, he had talked to me about wanting to know more, but not having any way of getting it. And I, I just, my point being, we, unless we really, really desire to know, we won't know. We will we'll live in ignorance as long as we're willing to do it yeah. to shield our own ignorances and to, and to, to hold our own agendas. And one thing I tried to do is to listen to people who sound racist, even though they sound racist so that I can learn, learn. And maybe there's something there that I'm not seeing and missing. And just because someone arrogantly, I think I've written about this before, um, taking all criticism and making it constructive is something that I think is, is a, is a high quality of a Christian, something that we should all consider and make a real part of our lives that, even though there may be flaws in their theology, we can learn, we can, we can gain from this and we can also give. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not present in someone who says, 
I don't even seek out to know and understand people of color because that's racist in itself. Yeah. Not only is it cynical, but it's often used as a way to mock liberals. Yeah. Because um, you can never please liberals, right? That's just so unchristlike. It's so it's so. Um, I cannot imagine that Jesus would look fo- fondly on that, and yeah. we really, really have to be very careful. Um, the attitude at which we approach this issue, even if we don't think it's an issue, yeah. are we humble enough to? Which a lot of people are we humble enough to to listen as if it were, yeah, and learn, yeah, and and hear and empathize. Yeah. If at the end of all that you don't agree, you don't see it, well then you listened and you heard and you and you continue to listen more. Maybe your your mindset yeah. will change in the future. But just saying, I know one black person who never experienced this, or even like what you're saying, I don't want to ask them how they feel because that's offensive. Mm-hmm. It's offensive. That's that's yeah. what's messed up about the conversation is that yeah. um, we're not humble enough to seek after the wisdom that is there. Yeah. And I think that that's, a, that's actually a, um, a massive disrespect to black culture um a slap in the face to say that for somehow one way or another i don't need to seek out to understand your culture mm-hmm. is part of what's created the problem in the first place yeah. especially a christian ethic yeah so kind of i we keep dancing around the definition of racism and we should get to that too but another question that i had was why why is it important to learn someone's taste or culture um, and kind of, yeah, I've got a lot of responses or thoughts in my head, um, as you were talking there, because like this really is as most things, an extension of human life and human experience and our, our depravities in other ways, because like, obviously if What's an example? If, you know, for someone who lost a loved one and somebody is, walks up to them and, and just starts, you're like, well, yeah, you know, we, we know it's hard to lose loved ones, but we, we can hope in eternal life and Jesus is coming back and we'll be able to see them again and we can just move on with our, our life as it is. You know, most mm-hmm. people will be able to see and be like, whoa, dude, give him some some space to grieve and, and, uh, sit in the, the sorrow. And, um, or if you're just joining a new job or a new church or something, and you see all kinds of things that they're doing wrong, it's kind of protocol. We understand if you're new, you don't just jump in with your opinions and ideas. First, listen, understand what's been in the past, kind of what they've tried Mm -hmm. or not done. And so that should play into conversations on racism or other issues that we, and it kind of exposes that we have a preconceived idea about the conversation. We don't want to be confronted with the fact that it's maybe wrong or misshaped. Yeah. Um, But yeah, like why does, why does learning someone's taste or culture matter? Why does it 
so I hear from, tell me if I'm wrong, but I hear from you saying that don't look at, oh, I don't see color because seeing color is valuing the differences. And that's a part of what we see in scripture is that there's many different tribes and people coming together, working together. Um, so why, why, with that, why does it matter that we understand culture and taste? So is it okay? We enjoy black music when it's acapella, um, kind of barbershop style black music or something that kind of mirrors a typical white culture or something. Is that the only kind of black music we should enjoy or listen to kind of understand the black worldview or Mm-hmm. So I um, acknowledge that there there are just difficulties about this that are there, and that make this difficult. So it's not a solution to this problem, but it's a maybe some some insights that might be might be helpful. Um, I think I'd mentioned even this before, earlier in, in this session here that part of part of what we need to be doing is seeking out the gifts of others, identifying what do they bring to the table. And so people who are reading my articles acknowledge that me being a biracial Mennonite guy from the hood um, with 10 years of membership in a Mennonite church brings a perspective that's extremely rare. Mm -hmm. Um, That, um, in fact, of my friends of color there's no one like me there's no one that has that would fit those description descriptions um maybe one one actually actually with a family but then he's married and has kids and he loves every kind of anyway so i have a perspective that for a long time i wasn't sharing because of the reactions i would get when it comes to racism i was never afraid that what i had to say wasn't right I was afraid that it would cause more division than it helped um, break away. Um, There are other people with perspectives that should be heard. It's not just Keyshawn. It's not just the people who Keyshawn recommends. It's um, enemies. It's um, atheists. It's black Baptists. It's black Pentecostals, Hispanic Pentecostals. It's it's all of these people, mm-hmm. um, Asians, Christian Christian Asians. There's all these people need to be heard as well, mm-hmm. and seeking out their gifts. Um, it sounds self centered, but it does advantage us. It advantages the kingdom as a whole. Not only does it help them to verbalize what they have to offer and maybe even validate them and enable them to share those gifts. Um, but that is exactly what Paul was was trying to get across mm. to the church is, hey, guys, look around. You've got preachers. You've got teachers. You've got administrators. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let me go see what's <laughs> up here. Yeah.
Okay. So that's what Paul was trying to address um, with the church. He was saying, look around, guys. You've got teachers and preachers and administrators and gift givers and um, Mm -hmm. servers, and you've got all these different gifts among you. And the the context seems to indicate that you would not have this this um, broad amount of of giftings if you weren't diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's still true today. It's not limited to just those gifts. There's there's all kinds of perspectives and um, talents that are out there that can be used. And um, you can't tell me that there aren't talents in Asian culture that can't be used for the kingdom that aren't that aren't worthwhile. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me there. I mean. Black culture is a very American, very um, observable closely by, the, by Americans. Mm-hmm. It's clouded by media and made to look negative, mm-hmm. um, to call out all the negative aspects. But, and of course, white culture is there. Hispanic culture is very prominent. We see all these cultures. Um, do we see their value? Mm-hmm. And, and that's not all it should be. It should not just be, we want to convert this person and bring them into our church so they can so we can use them that's not no absolutely not and i hope no one listening to this thinks that's what i'm saying what i'm saying is that's what paul was saying Mm -hmm. that's what the bible tells us Mm -hmm. and and so it feels to me like again back to our responsibility as a church we are um all partially responsible to um to seek out the people who are different than us, people who are not being involved, not in the kingdom, and involve them to to bring that about. If we're not doing that, it just becomes so hard for me to imagine how you can justify that, how you can yeah. find a worldview that includes passionate Christ Christ following belief and love that does not include wanting to see more diversity in our churches and doing whatever it takes within biblical reason to do so. Yeah. The beautiful thing is that we have the biblical instruction to, to move forward without compromising our Christian belief. Mm-hmm. We have a way forward. We have the truths that are there. And we're not even doing that much. Because mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of social reforms that I think could help, a lot of practical things mm-hmm. that I think would help Mennonites disciple better. And I've written about those. Yeah. But I, what's really most important is, is what do we already have here in the scriptures? Yeah. What is already here? What's been here for the last 2,000 years that we can tap into and we yeah. can learn from? And um, yeah. that's what, I, what I'm mostly passionate about because that's what's infallible. That's, yeah. what, is, that's what is evident. Yeah. And it's very evident that the book of Romans was meant to indicate Jews and Gentiles, especially talking to the Jews at the, at the moment, saying we even went as far to say that the Jews were used, their failures were used to reach the Gentiles, um, which is like a big slap in the face to any racist or ethnocentrist of that time. Like, yeah. you guys, God's chosen people, did so poorly that God had to, God, God started using your failures to reach the Gentiles. Um, think Jonah, you know, I mean, just the, the, the purpose being, let's take joy when other cultures find Christ. Um, and let's not shame them to that. Let's 
love them to that. And then let's let the church become more, become better because of it. And I think that that's ultimately what happens when we, we reach cultures and we um, pursue them, as you said, yeah. um, we, we find more beautiful things yeah. and we'll talk about nature. We'll talk about how beautiful nature is and going out and exploring nature, 80 year olds going out and discovering new things about nature and how awesome that is. But people are, uh, you know, that's racist. <laughs> and yeah. to me, that is just such a perversion of scripture yeah. that it really bugs me that we'll put more effort into going out and understanding God's, God's stones and God's trees and God's birds. But then here are people in front of us yeah. in his image. Yeah. And, and we'll use excuses like, well, we, that'd be racist to go and ask them their perspective on things. Yeah. And if this helps, you don't have to mention their color. You can just have pure intentions. Mm -hmm. You can just demonstrate through your life. And this is probably better. You don't have to go up and say, someone came up to me one time. They wanted to diversify their baby's experience. So he came up to me and said, well, you hold my baby as a black man so she's not afraid of black people. Um, I'm not going to tell you how that made me feel. You could probably infer. Yeah. It would have been better for him just to give me the baby, yeah. right? And yeah. he knows why. He has good intentions. He's a loving guy. Was he a friend? I, I know one person. Huh? Was he a friend of yours that... Like you interact Hardly. with often? Oh, okay. Hardly. We had spent time at a, uh, we spent time together for, I won't say where, but anyway, yeah. we, we had spent a few weeks before together in the same area. And, uh, it was, it, someone asked me, so what, what, what more would you rather have him do? There's an attempt, someone attempting to, um, appreciate you and it hurt your feelings. How are we supposed to do this? And I said, well, it would have helped if it wasn't just about my color, mm -hmm. it, w it would have helped if it was here, you are a human being that can love my daughter. Mm -hmm. Would you please do that by holding her? Be, absolutely. That we're, the, we're part of the same kingdom. Like I would love yeah. to help um, shepherd your child into becoming a loving person. Mm -hmm. And I don't mind knowing that because I have the color that I do, it's helpful if I, love them it's helpful that and, and i've had people in our church that kind of like cautiously come up to me and say hey is it okay if i like the fact that you as a person of color are loving my children i'm like well yeah i mean isn't that a part of who i am isn't that a part of what i bring to the table here and again not everybody feels that way because there's a lot of bitternesses there's a lot of frustrations and those things are all they all count. They all matter. Um, at the end of the day, the, the kingdom should be seen in such a way that everybody, yeah. including skin colors, everything, there's so much about everyone that can be brought in to help the, the larger family. Yeah. And one thing I actually say in my article that I just posted is, and I'm not self-promoting, I'm just yeah. referencing yeah. the article that I, which article? Yeah. Um, is I talked a little bit about, earlier about my perspective as a biracial Mennonite man. Mm -hmm. um, that in itself is, dare I say, a gift. It is a, it is something that I can bring to help others. I am a more effective teacher because I look like the people I'm serving. Mm -hmm. I I connect so much easier, and also 
also experiences. I mean, come, yeah. I mean, I grew up in the same place I'm teaching. No one else except our administrator can say that about our school that's working there right now. And my sister, um, that, that is unique to, to me and my family. And that matters. That makes a big difference in not the negative aspects, not you don't have this. And I do it's, this is a gift. This is worth celebrating. This is something that we can use to better reach people and love them. And that's awesome. Not bad. That's not negative. That's not wrong. And I think we've been given the impression over years that diversity is something that threatens us and that potentially could even be a bad thing. And that's not when you read through the book of Romans, that's not what is said. We don't have to, to kill off everything that they know and that they appreciate. Mm -hmm. We can help them bring to the table what is useful, what is not. I don't know if that means that we, Asher, that we listen to. I I love African tribal music. I love it. I love it. I love it. Ever since I got into it, I've listened to it almost every day. Mm -hmm. Um, I love um, Taze music um, from France and Mm -hmm. all these different cultures. I love them. And I think that just because someone else doesn't love them doesn't mean that they're racist, doesn't mean that they're prejudiced. Mm-hmm. Um, but if someone joins their church and does love it, um, and what I see as valid forms of worship, you don't have to start playing it in your house, but at least listening to why they like it. And and sometimes a simple, well, thanks for sharing is enough. That's a, a classic Clayton line. Yeah. is when he doesn't really know how to respond, doesn't maybe even see the point in what they're saying. Um, and you can say this to me without... And yeah, there's always going to be someone who is a little more offen- a little offended that, uh, well, you don't like my music, and that means you don't like me. Those are immaturities. Mm-hmm. Those are not... Mm-hmm. I can't defend those. Those are... Yeah. That's a... That's not true. I don't have to like your music to love to like you but if you like it maybe i'll try it or at least i'll i'll listen to you and why you're passionate about it we can at least go that far and that you can't do that with the mindset that you had mentioned before where it's it's racist to call this to even ask and seek out this this wisdom Mm -hmm. this is why it's important for us to seek out these cultures because we can learn so so much by learning we are also loving them. We are also making sure they feel appreciated. Yeah. And that's how we should be treating each other in the church. Yeah. Yeah. We yeah. can begin treating them. I'll stop here. We can begin treating them like brothers before they even are brothers. Mm-hmm. It's one of the principles that I, that I share in my discipleship articles yeah. is you should begin valuing them as a part of your family yeah. before they even are there. And if you do that, that once they take on Christ, they're already already ingrained. They're already relating to you on a personal level. You can you can have those things. Yeah. So even if you encounter a person of color that isn't a Christian, um, the practice of valuing them this way is a a, a good practice. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It it seems like a lot of it, you know, we are told to do unto others what we would have them do to us. And if you flip it and think like I enjoy talking about my culture. I enjoy talking about my things that 
I like, things that um, traditions, even like my family as opposed to another white family or whatever, we all enjoy talking about those nuances of our upbringing, of our preferences and so forth. And so to ask, to ask somebody about theirs, not only allows them to talk about something they enjoy talking about, but then we get to know them better at a deeper level and, and can see into their likes and dislikes and so forth. Um, but then on the flip side, if I stop and think about how weird it would be for somebody to bring their baby up to me and be like, Hey, you're white. Can you hold my baby? Mm -hmm. Like that would just feel weird. Or I want a Mennonite to hold my baby. Yeah. Hold my baby. Yeah. yeah it, like it's going to feel weird to a black or brown person too. It's not. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. I, um, I think too, like kind of with that asking, learning someone's taste and culture, you have mentioned in this episode some you have referenced passages from scripture that demonstrate the diversity that I haven't even thought about. Like I think of other passages um, I hadn't thought about John looking and seeing many different tribes and tongues. Like I just read that and yeah, that's true. But to think about the fact that he saw with his eyes different colors, different tribes, I don't think about that. And probably because I very rarely think walk into a group of people and think, oh, I'm the only white person here. Um, mm -hmm. So it, I, I'm just saying all that to say that it, as we hear people's backgrounds, as we, uh, stories, their different tastes and so forth, different verses that stick out, um, we get a different perspective even of scripture or of God than we do just in and of ourselves. Um, what, so if it's, if it's not racist to ask someone about their culture or how they feel around white people or whatever, what is racism? What, how do we define racism? And it seems like the big, we probably should have started the episode with this question um, because my experience has been when there is controversy in these conversations, a lot of it comes back to that two people are approaching their understanding of racism, the definition of that word, that term, differently. Um, some people see racism as just the fact that you would take some, another person of a different ethnicity or any any particular race and make them your slave a very graphic you're not paying them you're abusing them they're working for you you're sitting in plush mm -hmm. other people like myself i would understand racism to be more an embedded uh prejudice that maybe isn't gra graphic or always visible and not even always hostile but just kind of a way of thinking and observing the world that causes me to neglect um, other races potentially how, what how would you define racism yeah so let's start at the base racism at, at a base is the uplifting or degrading of another race um in relation to another mm -hmm. 
so um, it's racist of me to say um, black people are better than white people, period. That's a that's a, uh, a racist thing to say. Um, or vice versa, that white people are less than black people or, yeah. Um, the pushback that that definition has been given in the last 15, 20 years, um, and what has become a more popular definition among academics is that racism is prejudice, which is basically another word for ignorance. Prejudice is when you are unaware of something, and so you treat something or say something that's not right because you lack wisdom, you lack knowledge. Um, that's what prejudice is. And so saying that um, black people should, if you bring up the issue of um, employment, the discrepancies between employment opportunities, and I've had people tell me before, black people don't deserve the same opportunities because the crime rates are higher. Um, well, the crime rates are higher, but it's prejudicial because first off, I'm not a criminal. Mm -hmm. And so therefore I deserve the same opportunities. Mm -hmm. And it's also racist because you're saying that because I look like this, I deserve worse treatment. Mm -hmm. There are prejudices that are not racism. Um, I don't like cottage cheese. I've never had cottage cheese before. It looks nasty. It smells nasty. It sounds nasty. I don't like it. I'm prejudiced towards it, and it doesn't doesn't appeal to me. That's an innocent example. There are prejudices in my life that are human to human, and they're not good. Um, we all have those prejudices, and I think when people say we're all racist, I I far more prefer to say that we all have prejudices because we are all ignorant. And anybody can agree with that, that we all lack wisdom. We all are constantly learning and constantly forgetting things we've learned. We will always have these prejudices. But I like to consider racism a sin and work that needs the blood of Jesus. And I don't want to have any definition that um, clouds that, that messes that up. So the idea that racism is prejudice plus power is a newer definition, um, is a newer, um, it's, it even implies that if you don't have power, if, if you don't have institutional power or an arm of authority, you, you can't be racist. Um, which I find, um, hard to, hard to navigate through because growing up where I did, I knew racist black people. And if what they were saying wasn't racist, then what is it? You know, is it really prejudice? They know very well what they're saying is ignorant, but they're uh, and and it's definitely elevating one race above another, mm -hmm. or degrading one below another. Mm -hmm. But we can't call it racism because they're not white. They're not in a position of institutional power. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that racism can be true on several levels it can be true from poor to poor it can be true from poor to rich it can be true from white to black black to white and i believe that it differs in appearance and in severity based off of the level it's on mm 
how it's being portrayed. If it involves money and livelihood, that's a different type or a different struggle with racism than it is if it involves the Mennonite church or it involves um, adopting a black child into your family and not treating him right. It appears differently. It brings on different monsters. And I think that's how sin is in general. Robbing from a corner store will get you into different trouble than robbing a bank does. And I think that that's how the natural world around us, the order that God set, is, has um, existed since the beginning of time. Um, you write about pornography quite a bit. Um, I approached one of my... Um, professors one time and I asked him, is it, is it wrong? So we we're supposed to confess to each other when we wrong, when we're wrong, right? We're supposed to confess when we have wronged someone personally, we're supposed to confess. He had just preached a sermon about it on Sunday, on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I asked him, I was like, so if I lust after a woman, should I go confess to her that that's what I did? Mm-hmm. I knew his answer. Of course not. I mean, there's no way he'd say yes, right? Um, and that's where he introduced me to the idea that sometimes we have to include what we know about the natural order of the world, um, the way God works through that, to know and have wisdom and have tact and knowing. And he say, he actually told me, Keyshawn, if your heart is telling you to do that, then go do it. And he knew it wasn't. But um, we know that that would be inappropriate. We also know that if we stole from someone, we should confess that and we should restore it. That's both scripturally true and it's consciously true that if I wrong you, you should know about it. So with racism, we there are levels. Um, I think my point is not that there are the severities matter. Racism is racism. It's sin. It's sin. It's sin. And if it's sin, it needs the blood. And so I think it's all wrong. I think it's all bad. But I think that there are different ways it expresses itself. And it's all racism. But it needs to include um, prejudice put into race, into races, into races actions. It needs to include um, an elevation or a degrading of another of another race. Yeah. Um, even if it's just one person. Yeah. Um, representing that race. Yeah. I'm not a fan of, of anything that it absolves someone because of the way they look or the position they're in, mm-hmm. that they can't sin mm-hmm. because they don't have power. Yeah. Does a thief steal if he steals from the powerful? Does a thief steal if he's a, if he's a homeless man? Um, mm-hmm. I think that reason needs to be capable of all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the implication is that there may even be levels. Yeah. I'm not completely comfortable writing about that. Um, and again, this is an, an exploratory perspective because I've been really considering this racism plus power definition quite a bit. Hmm. Um, ever since I wrote my article about it um, a while back, three years ago or so, um, I've really been considering the implications of that. So this is exploratory. Yeah. Um but that there may be levels of it, all wrong, all needing the blood of Christ. Um, and there may also be um, 
there are levels of it that appear differently depending on how they're coming, how it's coming through. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting hearing you talk about it because you're one of the first people of color that I've talked to who doesn't, isn't comfortable with that definition, uh, prejudice plus power. And so I, I've, I've really kind of listened to that definition more um, because it seemed like one that was surfacing quite a bit. But then to hear you talk brings another perspective. And I told, I get what you're coming at. Basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing you is prejudice plus, plus power at its surface sounds like it absolves anybody who doesn't have power from being, from having to deal with that sin of racism. And also what I'm hearing you talk about is that there's, there's different levels of, so like someone might, you know, here in LA, I have personally bumped into the fact that as a white person, I can charge people more for my, I do handyman work. I can charge people more and people don't really bat an eye about it than what some like the Mexicans are all that's cheap labor. That's, you know, if they were to charge, even if they might do as good a job as me, um, mm -hmm. people view them as the cheap labor. If you want to go the cheap route. Interesting. And yeah. so someone might be able to say, well, I don't do that. I understand, you know, they're this Mexican brother might do just as good a job. And so I'll pay him what, what he's worth. Um, but then maybe in the church would have a little harder time following him as a pastor than another white person. So yeah. like at the, at the service level, as far as work and vocation and stuff, he's not racist, but when it comes to interactions in the church and the, the brotherhood and choosing leaders and so forth, he might be racist as opposed to, uh, mm -hmm another white guy who really hasn't demonstrated a whole lot of the fruit of the spirit and the transformation of Jesus Christ, but he's been in the church all his life. And so we, yeah. Um, and so I see, I see what you're, what you're talking about too, with the different levels of racism. I guess one of the questions that I have, I'd love to hear your response. Um, so you mentioned the, the, different kinds of prejudice that we can have, which is also true. And so now I'm rethinking my thought. I would have viewed prejudice. So yes, anybody can be prejudiced and that's in itself a sin. The prejudice towards another human being made in the image of God is, are you still with me? Hey, you there? Oh, you're back. Okay. I, I heard you, you got to, I would have seen prejudice as, and then it, oh, okay. it stopped. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would have seen prejudice as a sin that we all need prejudice to another human being made in the image of God as being a sin that we all need to deal with. And then racism as being this larger picture as a result of this sin because part of what I like about the racism plus or prejudice plus power definition is that if, if, if we define racism just as prejudice, the response that I often hear is, well, everybody's prejudiced and we just get deflection 
as opposed to actually dealing with the the issue of power like it seems there needs in order to talk about racism um at the societal level i don't know mm-hmm. you you some eventually you it seems like you also have to have a conversation about power and the way that i don't know I think it's Jamar Tisby. He wrote the book Color of Compromise. Um, talks about racism being the the culture of racism here in America. It's like a moving sidewalk. So if you're just you're not racist, you're not participating in it, but you're not standing up against it or fighting against racism, doesn't mean that you're you're helping anything. You're just going along with culture down the sidewalk, and you have to actually stand up and start walking against the stream and fighting against racism if you're going to change anything absolutely embedded um and and so he's he brings out a lot of the 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 power aspect of just so if we think of power as enslaving people then it's like well no that doesn't exist today but if we think of power as in who are the ones giving voice? Who are the ones making decisions? And are they, is there anybody who's black or anybody who's a black single mom living off of welfare in here in LA? Like, is her voice being heard in our church or in our city council or whatever? Um, for the decisions that are made for the church body or for the local community or whatever level of governance we're talking about. Um, yeah. So how do you include that aspect of it too, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, the fact that yeah. there's, yeah. Power gives you. The well, ability, it's interesting. Yeah. Go for it. It's interesting. Um, you said that you would have saw prejudice as sin. And then racism as a um, as a uh, effect, and I would have seen a little differently, right? So, mm-hmm. I guess my response would be what you're explaining is a form of racism um, mm-hmm. and prejudice. Um, I just feel like maybe you call it the leap theory that you take a leap to racism when it involves. Um, a clear sign that this person is being undervalued because of their color or because of not just color, even um, their categorization um, as a part of black culture. Um, That's also important to recognize that it's not always about their color. Some of it, it's about the way their name sounds, the way they're. um, So I acknowledge that needs to be addressed in a, in an aggressive and clear way. I feel that, um, it is another type of racism, institutional racism or, um, what are, what are good, good terminologies for racism in the workplace? Um, maybe that's what it is. Workplace racism. I think that those are all types of racism. Um, I think it's possible for people to be undervalued and it not be their color, not be their 
culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I'd call it racism. And, and that's where I feel like you have to have somewhere where a leap is taken. Um, and I don't think power should be the judge of that. Um, because especially in poor communities where white people are not involved, um, in York, yes, we have white government, but there are also other places where the, the neighborhoods are predominantly black and the mayor is black and the business owners are mostly black. And so does racism exist in those counties, in those neighborhoods, or is it just all prejudice? And I really don't, especially don't like what usually is a logical conclusion of all this and that minorities cannot be racist. Um, the idea that they cannot make the leap into sin there. And so you redefining that the prejudices could be sinful is interesting. Um, I don't have enough time here to think through that, but that's a, uh, I think a worthy response that needs to be considered. Is it possible that maybe the prejudices are sinful? Um, but, you, but you would also agree though, that racism is sinful. Wouldn't you? Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, in that the the sin of prejudice is clearly leading to racism. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't like. I told when I listen to you talk, and there's been other people I've had conversations about the prejudice plus power. I totally get the concern that that it it uh, kind of seems to absolve those without power of having that sinful attitude. I guess my my question is what keeps people from just deflecting and, and maybe we just need to aggressively address the issue of deflection um, mm-hmm. when when we just say, well, everybody's racist like, or everybody's prejudiced. You know, everybody has. And well, it, like, I guess the prejudice plus power doesn't address the potential for someone in power. No, no, sorry. I'm getting this wrong. Yeah. I'm not sure where my mind was going there. But um Yeah, go for it. What were you gonna say? So one thing that I've heard before I disagree with. Um and, and actually you said I'm the first person of color that you've heard with this perspective. Um I don't uh have friends of color that agree with me on this that I've talked to about, I haven't talked about this specific issue with all of them. So I admit that it's a, uh, I'm a stubborn man. If I don't see evidence for it, I don't accept it. So, um, but I have talked about it a lot. And so it's a pretty, um, I I think I, I still believe it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but with that being said, um, I'm, I'm a part of a group of social studies teachers um, that get together at conferences and have circles and communicate. And um, one of the things that's very common is one break talking about the issues of uh, slavery and manifest destiny and all these things and the Holocaust. We have to teach our, teach our students that if they were in the shoes of a Nazi, they would have listened to what Hitler said too. I push back on this because there were people who were not listening to Hitler. There were white people who were not slave owners and were against it. Mm -hmm. And so 
to suggest that you're not responsible for what you do because you're conditioned is a very um, – that's what's probably causing that reaction to this idea that there can be people who can't be termed as racist. It really – it comes from a, a mindset that's similar to that, that um, feels like it, it makes – it allows us to take away mm-hmm. um, a shared human experience. We're all capable of evil. And we're all capable of thieving. We're all capable of lying. We're all capable of adultery or fornication. But we don't do them because yeah. we're Christians. Yeah. And um, I feel like um, – but then again, yeah, most history teachers in that in the circle that I'm in would disagree with me about the um, the whole history thing. They would still hold that we should teach students that – and I agree that we should teach them that they shouldn't cynically judge all people in history because they were all bad people because we're bad people too. Like we, we have the abortion thing happening right now, and mm-hmm. it's possible that 10 years from now people will look down on us very severely for what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not being vocal enough. We're not being active enough. We're not doing enough there. Mm-hmm. And so um, – but I don't think that that means that there couldn't have been Nazis, you know, of course there, there, there could have been a, Nazis did not have to be Nazis and um, racists do not have to be racist. And um, so my definition, I want it to be something that allows for all people to fall in or walk away from evils. And sometimes I think the weakness of the race and plus power definition is if you are a white powerful male, in America, you are inherently racist. Mm-hmm. If you are a poor black person in America, you are inherently not racist. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's racist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that in itself is fundamentally yeah. racist. Yeah. and I don't, I don't at all. Um, I can't tell you that I don't think about, um, yeah. Powerful white people as a threat to poor black people. That's very, very a real part of my experience. Yeah. Um, I think we need more black business owners. I think we need all of that. And I'm sure that if I could talk to your aunt, to others who, of color who have um, subscribed to this definition, to others who would would like this definition more, that we would agree with almost everything that needs to be happening for black people. Mm-hmm. But I do disagree fundamentally with this idea that um yeah yeah what yeah. i what i said that you need power yeah and mm-hmm. i like i like to the so obviously prejudice plus power seems to absolve those who aren't powerful but also you've brought out how race our definition of racism needs to be something that we can leave just like you're saying a, a white powerful man can leave and not be racist and still be in a position of power and authority and so forth by love and by the blood yeah that's the chris we have to remember that christy um christian life is this solution like that's something that i think that we're kind of ashamed of we always have to go back to jesus and i'm like what else are we gonna do well that's the author and finisher of our faith like that's that's what we believe in that's what we put stock in and Mm -hmm. and um so you talked about um 
people saying we're all racist. So that's how I combat it. I say, well, we weren't, we weren't all Nazis either. We weren't all slave owners. We don't all have to be sinfully racist. Yeah. And we address that through two things, love and the blood of Jesus. We have to get rid of the sin. We have to confess this. We have to surrender this. Yeah. And then we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to get power yeah. um, to overcome Jesus to give the blood yeah. Um, yeah. and the flower that mercy. We, we That's what we need, yeah. um, in Amen. my opinion. Amen. Hey, we have, I've really enjoyed this. We've been talking for a couple hours now. Um, so I should, I should let you go. And I, I would love, do you have any advice for people who have adopted children of color? Um, obviously if, if they're not that same color and, uh, what, this is, this is a conversation we, um, my wife and I have talked about adopting over the years. Right now we're, we're kind of, um, scared to, <laughs> we, uh, feel the overwhelm of our own kids, let alone, we don't want to damage other kids. Um, that's kind of a, a weak response, I guess, because, um, there are so many kids without families who needs families and it's something that is on our hearts. And so even in our imperfect imperfectness, uh, to be a part of providing that family and, and, uh, shepherding them to the father in family. Um, but one of the things that I've often thought about is the cultural differences. Um, I've se I've observed closely the challenge of adoption period. But then you add on to that cultural differences and um, racial differences. And there's, I forget where it was, somewhere recently I saw a comment from someone who was an adoptive parent and basically they, they were hearing questions and conversations from their children who were colored. I'm not sure if they specified which. And they were troubled by it and then finally they just had to talk with them about how it's, you know, everyone is, you know, there's, there's no difference, no color. Um, and I like, obviously it's just a, a comment on a Facebook thread. And so there's probably a lot being misunderstood from me as I read that, but I wince a little bit because I wonder, it seems like when we go to, when we as whites go to adopt, especially in conservative Anabaptist world, it's so important that we understand that we give those kids the space to wrestle with questions of racism, to, to wrestle through the difficult story of the back of their people and the history. Mm -hmm. um, and that we acknowledge our people's part in sinning against them or um, rather than just trying to quickly kind of salve that part of, just curious what your, any advice you would have for adoptive parents or, um, yeah. yeah. Two experiences I have. One is a family that goes to our church and adopted a, uh, little biracial girl, um, beautiful young girl. Um, and, um, 
the mom actually came and asked me, what do, uh, what do I do? Literally, that was what she asked. Like, how, how do I help her grow up? Um, seeing her skin as a beautiful thing and, um, not looking at, not adopting prejudicial, um, outlooks that Mennonites may have, um, that would end up causing self-identity issues and, um, serious confusion, um, for, um, her as she grows up. The other experience I have is having been adopted into the Shank family, um, and the struggle that that has been, um, yeah, to me, a lot of what you said hits, hits it on, hits on it. Most of the, the major things, um, I, I think though, as they're being taught, um, I hesitate to say, even though I think it's important that they should be, um, extra extra intentional about pursuing people of color um befriending people of color um because it sounds like if i say that then i'm saying you should befriend people of color um for your benefit not not a way of service not a way of love and i want it to always be about service and love um we have to somehow make sure that this young person of color or not color, but especially of color, purposes to serve all, becomes a servant of all and loves all. Mm-hmm. And we should not allow a negative perspective of their self or their people get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that happen. I talked about it earlier. I've seen it happen where they grow up mm-hmm. and they they hear all these strong opinions and then they just go with what with the one that's most accessible because to stand out and speak against that would would be so, a social suicide in many ways. They're surrounded in a youth group, the people who would not agree with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they just take on the worldview most readily ahead uh, there with them. Yeah. Then they get into their late teens and adult years, and they're really, really confused mm-hmm. because um, I think we can bat that first with a scriptural view of race. Um, we not just that we're just all humans, but that we are all gifted in different ways. Again, that when John looked up into the heavens, he saw colors. And um, he noticed that and mentioned that, that there were different tribes up there. Um, Why would he say that? Why does that matter? Um, It's not racist for John to say there were tribes. That's not racist. And so, um, or prejudicial, it's neither of them. And so for... um, for that, for that kid to grow up, um, or if they're adopted as teenagers, to um, to learn mm-hmm. that we as a family, we as a church, a local church, can't speak for the whole church, but as a local church, are learning alongside you. Mm-hmm. We are also learning because we're we're not very adequate ourselves mm-hmm. as white Mennonites who probably have not had a lot of exposure ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, let's spend the next 20 years learning this together. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes ton, a ton of tact. It takes a lot of um, forgiveness mm-hmm. from both ends because there will be mistakes when you're that close, mm-hmm. when you're that involved. Mm-hmm. People um, can ally with me and jump in and out, and we never ever um, 
I, we never get in massive fallouts because we're not close enough to do so. Yeah. Um, that was um, different. Different when I. I'll be right back. Go ahead. reminds me of Kevin's kids um that uh what was I saying um yeah uh something was different you were just about ready to say it, it was yeah different. I know and I, yeah, I was gonna say it was different. um yeah I lost that yeah um yeah we we um for for, for young adopted people of color um, recognizing that maybe you're not equipped to provide them with what is ideal. And so you're going to be learning a little bit ahead of them. And eventually they're going to be up there. I mean, they know their experience better than you. So it's not that you're wiser or more aware of their experience than they are. But as parents, you need to be authoritative in some ways. And so demonstrate what it should look like. Um, and that's why I, I, I said I, I hesitate to say that you should go befriend more more people of color, but that's an example of something that is helpful mm-hmm. is you if they have people of color coming into your home, and I say this is helpful for Mennonite kids too, to see people of color coming in and laughing with you and mm-hmm. and um no, we don't they are human. <laughs> they and that 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 sounds so strange to say cuz clearly we know they're human. Yeah. But children, some children are growing up not even knowing that much. Yeah. And I've had kids come up to me. I've even heard them ask their parents in the night churches, um what is he? You know, what what um wow. what what are we looking at basically? Yeah. Um this is more on the humorous side, but a kid came up to me one time from our church mind you um our church is pretty diverse when it comes to where people live and how when they come in and how often they come into the city mm-hmm. so this kid knew nothing about people of color except for me i was the i was the one person of color mm-hmm. um and a cousin i think he has um and so he came up to me he's like Keyshawn, you don't have any skin where's your skin and i'm like what are you talking about it's right here look feel feel the skin He's like, oh, but it, it's brown. Like, it's okay. You don't have any skin. It's a, it's okay. Like, oh, wow. assuring me that I was still accepted, even though I wasn't normal. And yeah. um, he probably still thought I was a human. But how do we get to these places? Um, and how do we combat them? Yeah. And um, I don't want to say we should humanize black people because they should already be human. Mm-hmm. They should already be that. Yeah. But for the sake of children... Yeah. We need to make it clear to them that these are our friends yeah. in the same way that yeah. Um, yeah. white people are our friends. Yeah. That's not saying the same thing as, you know, I don't see color. Yeah. They yeah. see the color and they always yeah. will. Yeah. It's saying that the color doesn't make them subhuman, yeah. doesn't make them sub-Mennonite. It just yeah. means that. You know, they're beautiful in a different way, and we need to learn to embrace that. So we need yeah. to teach them to embrace color. Yeah. And however we do that, I mean, I'm, I'm sure parents of 
kids of color have better stories and better experiences than I do. Um, I think I would like to adopt as well. I think adoption is a a serious weak spot for the church. I think we should be adopting far more. Um, And if I were adopting a white kid, that would greatly change um, how I went about family devotions. How I went about, um, you know, what documentaries you watch as a family, what books are in our home. I'd want to make sure that he understands that he's loved and accepted. We should at least be giving that much to the kids of color in these homes. Um, and the church should be supporting, this is the last thing I want to say about it, the church should be supporting that family and helping in that regard. They should all join in in accepting and learning from, eventually, that that kid should be offering a perspective to that church in men's meetings when he's 18. And um, that's something that is built over time with humility, love, acceptance, and um, some hard conversations. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you, Keyshawn, for taking the time for two and a half hours here and dealing with some technical mm-hmm. difficulties and um, always enjoy talking with you. Always enjoy, as I said earlier, just the, the radiant, you radiate Jesus and I can see your love, love for him and I'm blessed and challenged by that. If you, uh, for the, anybody listening, if you want to continue to follow Keyshawn's work, it's urbanightmusings.wordpress.com. Yep. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll drop a link in the, in the episode notes as well, but definitely go check out. He's running a series on racism, what the Mennonite church has got wrong about racism um, right now. But I, you, you mentioned before, I think this was before we started, you mentioned this series has gotten the most views and it's really good. But I, one of my favorite series of yours is the one you did on discipleship, inner city discipleship. Um, definitely go mm-hmm. check that out as well. It's a really good, series just on practical perspectives of discipling people and why sometimes it our efforts to disciple in the inner cities don't work out um, as we intend but anyways thank you for coming on again and look forward to having more conversations and one of these days meet face to face absolutely thanks for having me yeah we'll talk to you later god bless